You're listening to the Running in Production podcast, where developers and engineers talk about their tech stacks, lessons learned, and general tips from running web apps in production. Here's Nick and today's guest. Welcome to Running in Production. Today, I'm with Stuart Kelly, who is using Django and Python to power an insurance company called Zigo. Stuart, welcome to the show. Thanks. Thanks. Good to be here. Yeah. Happy to have you on. So do you want to kick things off by introducing yourself and letting people know a little bit more about what your company does? Sure. So so like I said, my name is Stuart. Uh, I'm one of the original founders of Zigo. I've been a software developer for the last 15, 20 years. Uh, and about three and a half years ago, uh, two ex-colleagues and I formed an insure tech startup uh, because we really wanted to build a company that could provide cover that creates uh, possibility. So if you think about like the rise of the gig economy and new mobility options, traditional insurance companies weren't able to innovate quick enough to really keep up. Uh, and so you had people working one or two days a week or just on the weekends or Friday evenings who were needing to pay for full-time insurance. Uh, and so we went out there and asked like, why can't you sell insurance by the hour instead of by the year? And the answer we got back was like, hey, that's a really good idea, uh, but our software can't handle it. You know, the insurance companies were labored with like 40 years worth of technical debt. Uh, and so they said, yeah, we'll, we're happy to work with you, but you're going to have to do it all yourself. Uh, so we did. Uh, we built an insurance company as three people who had no real knowledge of insurance uh, in the industry. And we launched about eight weeks uh, after we decided to to really make a run for it. And we've now been in production for three and a half years. Uh, we've provided about 290 million hours worth of insurance uh, to about half a million customers. Well, lots of uh, really good stuff to unwind there. So you went from really not knowing much about the insurance company to shipping, I guess, some summer of MVP in, in eight weeks, two months? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, that's, that's an amazing feat. Yeah, uh, I was, so I was the sole developer at the time. Um, my other two colleagues handled the other half of the really hard stuff, which was all of the regulation, finding underwriting capacity, um, working out how we could be allowed to do what we were doing. Uh, and I basically had to build uh, an MVP of a policy management system from scratch. Uh, and then up until the end of uh, July, it hadn't run anywhere except my development machine. Uh, and so we needed to get it out into production. Uh, so the day beforehand, I pushed it to Heroku, got it up, it worked. Uh, we tried it out. We thought no one's really going to sign up on day one anyway, so let's just launch tomorrow. Uh, and someone did sign up on day one. Uh, I think we sold £2.30 worth of insurance that day um, to a guy named Sadiq. And like he called us up afterwards. I remember he went through the whole process. He went through the flow entirely on the website, signed up, put in his card details, bought £2.30 worth of insurance, and then afterwards called us up on our on our contact number, uh, which went to, to Sten's mobile phone. And he said, like, I think I've just bought insurance, but it was super easy, um, and that's not what I'm used to. Did I do it all right? Uh, and we, we looked on the screen, and we are like, yeah, you're covered. Like, if you want to go and work tomorrow, you're covered to go and work tomorrow. Uh, <laughs> and it just kind of went on from there. Like, they... they kept telling their friends and all like the deliverers and the Uber Eats drivers all around the UK started signing up. We, that was, yeah, about eight weeks after we decided to go within about six weeks, the amount of requests I'd had for a mobile application, cause we were all web-based 
um, came flooding through. And we, like we were still relatively small, so we were talking to all of our customers on like a regular basis. Uh, and they were saying, Stuart, I want a mobile app. I want a mobile app. Uh, and I was like, oh, you've got a mobile optimized website. Like, what are you going to get out of an app? And they're like, I just want a mobile app. So I looked on the stats. I wanted to see whether I needed to build them an Android app or an iOS app. Uh, and it was literally 51% Android, 49% iOS. Uh, and so I didn't have much choice. I had to build both. Uh, so we went with React Native. Uh, this is, uh, must be October by this stage, October 2016. Uh, we built our first, I say we, I built our first React Native app. Um, and we pushed that out uh, just before Christmas. Wow. So good timing there. Yeah, really good timing. So now let's dive into some of the technical bits here. So you mentioned that the site is built with Django on the back end, right? Yeah. Uh, what was your motivation there for choosing Django over maybe some other uh, potential frameworks or even languages instead of Python? So uh, like I said, it was very much a get to market as quickly as possible. And so I guess I'm most comfortable with Python. Uh, I'd had a fair bit of experience with Django, Flask, uh, and at a previous startup, we'd also developed an open source to microservices framework called Nameko. So there are a number of options to pick from. I guess what what drew me to Django over the others was uh, I really like the ORM, my familiarity with the ORM and, and for getting data models sort of modeled and iterated on quite quickly. Uh, you get the built-in authentication and admin system. Um, and so I knew that I wasn't going to have to worry about building out internal admin tools to configure any of this stuff for a while. And lastly, I guess the the Django's concept of apps, uh, these sort of internal modules, uh, allow the kind of separation that I knew we were going to need further down the line. Uh, so, you know, whilst I wasn't going to start with microservices, I didn't know enough about insurance to be confident that I could model my domains uh, properly. I did want to kind of have some kind of separation of concerns within the application itself. And Django's apps give you a really nice framework for doing that. Right. So someone like me, who's kind of an outsider to Django, I've heard, you know, having that built in admin is like a, a really, really big win. So are you actually using that in production to manage your own backend? Yes, we have, uh, I would say bastardized certain bits of it as much as we possibly could. Um, but it does for for all of the simple operations, for all of the, the CRUD operations or the changing of configs uh, and things like that, uh, we're still using the Django admin. Uh, a lot of the slightly more complex stuff, uh, we've had to uh, write our own JavaScript applications, um, like internal applications to work on it. But like so much of our system is still run entirely on the Django admin. Yeah, that's very cool to hear because it's actually you know, if you decide not to create any sort of admin, you're kind of stuck just writing queries like on the command line on like on-demand basis, or, you know, there's that huge time sink of just you having to wire up your own admin. So I love the idea of, you know, if you can get the 80% done with that, that's that's nice to have. Yeah, exactly. Um, and the, the core, I guess the core problems that we try and solve um, weren't, weren't ones based around internal tools. Uh, they're starting to get there. We're starting to need to sort of scale and become a bit more efficient in the way we do things and some of that means building slightly better internal tools but it's it's still going to be able to solve like the 80 percent right do you happen to know an example of maybe the the 20 percent that you kind of just couldn't use the admin you had to build your own thing for like what type of problem was it uh so a lot of it had to do with the policy management life cycle uh, and so uh this is where insurance can can get kind of complex if you have a policy but you want to change some users details 
the standard Django admin, you would change a bunch of user details in the user form. Um, but instead we needed to be able to say like, well, if you go through and change these details, this is the impact that that's going to have on the price of somebody's premium. Um, and so then you needed to be able to quote for that. So do sort of a, a change that wasn't actually saved to the database so that you could uh, be passing that quote through to the customer. Maybe they were on the phone or maybe they were on, on the app and say, right, if you do change your postcode or you change your type of vehicle, your insurance premium is going to like go up 15 pounds or go down, down 10 pounds. Building that into like a standard sort of create, read, update, destroy interface wasn't really going to work. Right. It's interesting you bring that up because it reminds me a lot like the new uh, API from Stripe where a lot of things need to be done sort of, and you're not in full control of the lifecycle anymore. Cause yeah, you could be on a phone with someone. You just need to wait like asynchronously for them to do something. Are you also happen to be using Stripe here for uh, the payments or no? Yes, we are. Um, so, and again, this came down to uh, a choice um, that I made very early on and I'm probably one of the ones I'm happiest with. Uh, I've integrated four different payment gateways in my life um, and Stripe is just so much better than the competition. It's not funny. Uh, in terms of developer experience and in terms of getting it up and running, uh, it was it was really seamless. Um, and uh, I imagine some of the stuff that people have had to do recently with a strong customer authentication work uh, that came through and their their change to payment intent systems. Uh, you're right; a lot of that stuff now happens asynchronously, and you need to be aware that you can send someone through a, a payment request, and their bank might challenge it, and then you need to be able to link them and say, hey, go and in, uh, input your auth code here to authorize this payment. Uh, and the way our system works, we do a lot of off-session payments. So uh, in order to create more flexibility, we allow people to sort of keep a Zego balance or a Zego wallet. And so they might top up their account with 20 pounds. And then as they work, that slowly drains uh, through their account. And then when they get to below a threshold, uh, whatever they decide to set, it can then automatically charge them to get their balance back up to 20 pounds. But that means those payments are not happening while the user is sitting on the app or on the phone or, or at their computer. Those payments are happening at any particular time, probably while they're out working. Uh, and so we needed to build in that asynchronous system that said, right, we might try and make a payment and then not be able to action it because we might have to send the user a, a push notification or a text and say, we need you to go here and authenticate this payment so we continue to insure you. Yeah, that's really interesting. Yeah, your billing model is very, I guess you can say, I mean, non-standard from like an outsider's point of view, right? It's not like a one-time simple charge and it's also not really like a monthly subscription. It's cool to see that Stripe and uh, Django and whatever else just gave you the possibility to create something like that. Yeah, it, it did. And and again, this was part of what we needed to build. Um, you know, the the opportunities that we had right very early on to use some software that already existed in the insurance industry uh, when you start throwing challenges like that at it uh, is where it really failed um, and so you know we were told like yeah we we're going to support you we can underwrite this insurance for you because obviously starting a full insurance company is very very hard you need a lot of capital uh, so we had some very supportive insurance partners but they did turn around and say but you can't use any of the software like it's not going to work. You're going to have to build it yourself. Hmm. Yeah, I, I sort of had a question around that. And I don't want to go too deep into it because it's like not super technical, I guess. But like, how does one even start an insurance company? It's like, if you want to accept payments online, you kind of have Stripe and PayPal and other payment gateways. Like it's very, 
you know, you wouldn't really just go out there and create your own payment gateway. Like, I mean, I guess you could, but that would be craziness. But like, how, what's like, what's the deal with insurance? Is there like some like parent backend that eventually someone, everyone talks to them? Or did you really have to do this all like from ground zero? So, so there's a, a concept of underwriting. Um, and so initially we worked very much as an insurance broker uh, rather than an insurance underwriter. And the broker is the one who maintains the customer relationship, does the sales and distribution uh, side of things. And in our case, the policy management side of things. Uh, and the underwriter is the one who uh, opens up their wallet when it comes time to pay out the claims. We found underwriters, we found traditional insurance companies uh, who wanted to innovate and wanted to support this market, but didn't have the capacity to build the technology to do it, who would say like, right, we will allow you as a broker to write insurance policies and to manage those insurance policies in your systems, which is a great deal of trust they put on, put in us. Uh, and if people have accidents, if people have claims, we will pay them out. Um, and you know, finding those people very early on is probably was probably the hardest bit. Like I, I talk about, you know, a bunch of sleepless nights in the first six to eight weeks trying to get an app ready for deployment. Um, my co-founders had to go out and not only get regulated so that we were allowed to sell insurance, but also find and convince an insurer that this crazy thing that they'd never heard of was going to get done by three people that they'd never heard of who had no insurance background. And I think that was a challenge all in itself. Now, earlier you mentioned a little bit about how you really like the idea of Django apps because it's very hard to kind of like pull apart an application into microservices when you don't even know what you're going to build. This is all then one mono repo, I guess, well, like one monolithic app broken up into specific Django apps. Yeah, so so we we have a monolith. Um, we're getting to the point where we're, we're starting to move into a little bit more of a service or event-based architecture. Um, but the apps within Django are really just Python modules. Um, but they're Python modules that allow you to really separate out the concerns so you can have a completely separate set of URLs, a completely separate set of models, signals, um, forms. And it, it doesn't enforce a hard boundary. Obviously, you can still just you know uh, import models uh, from other apps very, very easily, uh, which is great for iteration uh, and great for not knowing what you're doing. Um, but... Uh, I find like rather than just have one massive models.py with every single model in it, it kind of does make you think about where those boundaries are going to be, uh, which then allows us to, now that we're at the scale we're at, starting to break out into services, you can find the applications within that that sort of Django project that uh, are already kind of bounded context. And so you replace a you know, in-process function call with a over the network function call via whatever RPC framework you decide to go with, and you've essentially got service-based architecture. And that's that's something that I've found Django really doesn't enforce, but helps prioritize as like a good practice. Right, kind of just nudges you in the right direction. And then it's, I imagine, also very useful as a developer, just so you know, like, okay, I'm working on the billing code now, so let me just go to the billing app, and that's all I really need to look at. I don't need to look at these other 15 different apps. And that's and that's how it, that's how it works um, in practice, and the the theory behind it is that if you if you get something wrong, and you realize that one of the models that you put in your user app probably should have belonged in your billing app, uh, you don't need to do a massive refactor right then and there. You can just like from user dot models import user account balance, 
um, and start using that model with inside your billing app without needing to to actually do go to the work of taking all of that code and moving it from one app and putting it to another app and trying to stage that deployment so that there's no downtime and um, like the sort of things you would have to do if it was already microservices and you'd got those those entities in the wrong place. So it gives you a little bit more flexibility. So maybe do you just want to rattle off a couple of different app names that you happen to have? Um, yeah, so I mean, we I'll, I'll go for the high-level ones, obviously. Uh, we've got the, the policy app, uh, which is sort of the core of our policy lifecycle. Uh, we have our integrations app, which is where we store all of the information we need around integrating with different work providers, insurers, um, different SaaS providers, things like that. We have a claims module. Uh, we're handling a lot of claims at the moment. Um, and so as an entity, as a domain, uh, that one is there. Uh, we have a separate app for our pricing uh, engine. So the engine that takes all of the details uh, and turns that into a premium. Uh, we have an app for quotes, uh, which is sort of a halfway house between sort of pricing and it's also kind of the start of the policy lifecycle management. Uh, we have an app for sanctions uh, and verifications, so handling all of the GDPR stuff we need in place um, for selling any sort of financial transactions. You need to abide by loads of government sanctions lists and things like that. So we have an app for checking all of those. Uh, I mean, I could go and I think we've probably got about 20 to 25 apps now. Okay. Yeah, I think we don't need to go over all of them, but that's that's awesome to hear though. Like, that's a substantially sized app. Yeah, it's it's working really well, um, and and you know not all of those apps would break out into their own service, um, and that's where you know having and starting with a monolith was really helpful, was that now we can start to look at that and go well we've got those two apps, but the reality is you can never use either of them apart from each other, um, and so if we were going to break that out into a service, you would move both of those apps together into a new service. Right. So when you ship the MVP in in two months there at the start. Did you also have 25 apps or was it a lot smaller at that point? Uh, no, I think I had the user app. Um, I had the policy app and I had an app called website um, because the initial version of we were doing server-side rendering of our, our marketing website. Um, and I think that was it. So it's taken three, three and a half years, but we've, we've definitely increased the size of the code base an awful lot. Oh yeah, for sure. I mean, you accomplish so much in eight weeks, like three and a half years. It's like, whoa, it has, you know, unlimited potential to blow up in a good way. I mean, you know? Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, maybe teasing out a couple of microservices, possibly in the near future or sometime in the future, do you kind of know like maybe what type of services you would tease out of the code base as of today? Yeah. So we, our plan is to start with uh, some of the ones that are I guess, I guess very, very bounded. So ones that have existed as their own app inside Django for a long time um, and the domain and knowledge around them is very clear. Uh, and so uh, a few really good candidates would be things like the verifications that I was talking about. Um, and so being able to uh, take some user details and run them against government sanctions lists and credit lists and things like that to see whether or not we can sell this person a financial service. That hasn't changed. The code behind that hasn't changed in a very long time. Um, it It is very much a an asynchronous type of task. It's not a critical piece. Uh, and so whilst we, I guess, tease out all of the issues that come with moving to moving from a monolith to like 
two services, uh, which is things like how you do tracing and debugging and logging and deployment and things like that. We can handle all of that without also worrying about whether or not we've got our context right. Uh, so that's probably a good one. The pricing engine uh, is another good candidate for it uh, because there's a lot of data in it and we're starting to move towards a much more of a, a machine learning based pricing model uh, than the, the sort of GLMs that we have been using up until now. And so with that, um, we'll probably end up moving sort of pricing to its own service at some point. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I know uh, from prior experience, billing is usually one thing that it could usually be cleanly separated out. But a uh, question for you in that regard, if you ended up, you know, setting up the pricing thing in its own service, would you end up using its own dedicated database or would you still share one database for maybe a couple of different services? Um, I think we would end up using a dedicated database for each one. It would There would need to be a pretty good reason for not doing it. Um, and the only real reason I can think of is um, to save on cost. Um, the The issue with sharing a database is... Like one of the one of the massive advantages of microservices is really limiting your blast radius and decoupling things. Uh, and if you've got multiple services all reading off the same database, then they start to kind of tie into the same schemas, and you have to be very careful that they're not borrowing or joining to tables that they shouldn't be. Uh, which means no service can be, I guess, confident that it could completely throw away its own state management, replace it with something else, and nobody else will care. Uh, which should really be the goal. Like if, if a service was only interacted with via its APIs, then you should be able to move from Postgres to DynamoDB uh, or Neo4j or something like that. And nobody outside of your service should know or care. Uh, but if you're sharing a database, then you can never really be confident that someone isn't you know, in SQL joining to one of your tables in order to speed up some of their work. Uh, and the moment you stop updating that table because you've refactored your models, someone's going to come and complain. So I think I would probably move towards dedicated databases per service. Yeah, that, that makes total sense because then, yeah, you end up with some type of like, what is that term? Like a distributed monolith or whatever. Yeah. It's like you have 99 problems now, but like separation isn't one of them. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and both, both me, uh, the other staff and senior engineers at the company, have all worked on distributed monoliths before. Um, we know the pains, um, and they're 10 times the, the amount of pain you have from a standard monolith. So uh, we're going to be very careful not to do that. Right. So you mentioned early on the MVP, it was server render templates, and, and now it's like a React Native app. Uh, I guess you're using some API backend in current day? Uh, yeah, so we have a GraphQL database. Oh, not a GraphQL database, sorry, a GraphQL API layer. We, did, we decided quite early on to go with GraphQL rather than REST, um, primarily because we'd had a bit of experience using it. Uh, and it just feels like when you're building the front end stuff, it feels like the right thing to do. Uh, and it's really, it's really sort of gut feely and, and wishy-washy. Um, but I think for anyone who spent a bunch of time developing uh, front ends um, built off the back of an API, uh, it just it just feels nice, do you know what I mean? It feels it feels right to be able to describe the shape of your data, um, and and send it off to one endpoint and have the server work out how to give you back that data in the format that you need it. Right. So was that decision to go with an API backend based solely on just wanting to have first class support for uh, mobile apps? Um, it was probably it was probably the case. Like very early on, we realized we were building, uh, I guess, a platform rather than an application. 
Uh, and so by building an insurance platform, we knew there was going to be uh, this concept of, of applications built on top of our platform, uh, of which the mobile application was one. Um, and then we were having a, a website and web-based account management side, uh, which was another one. We knew we were going to be interacting with uh, third parties, whether it's insurers or work providers. We knew we were going to need to build claims handling and claims management applications on top of our platform. Uh, and so when when you know that you're going to be building a lot of other complex applications on top, it it ends up making a lot of sense to you know, sort of make everything available via APIs uh, and make everything interact with those APIs. And that way you can share as much as possible. Right, that makes sense. Well, one thing I, I do want to ask about insurance here. So do you offer the ability to get hole-in-one insurance if you're <laughs> someone who runs a golf tournament? <laughs> we we are not. I think Zong An uh, over in China might be the only people I know of that do hole-in-one insurance. We, we, are, we are focusing primarily on uh, the professional side of things so people insurance that people need to either run their business or to to go to work um uh, i do i do think that once you start getting to holding one insurance the the line between insurance and gambling starts to get even thinner than it, it typically is right yeah that's a good point i just remember i went to your site and i saw that drop down box and i didn't see hole in one insurance but i saw things like scooter insurance but that totally makes sense if you're a part-time driver like delivering food somewhere yeah, uh, we did April 1st uh, last year, we we offered uh, rocket launch insurance, uh, but nobody took us up on it, so we had to cancel the whole thing. Oh, not even Elon Musk? <laughs> no, we, we tweeted him uh, to see if he wanted it, but I figured, I figured he probably could have bankrupted us quite easily. <laughs> right. So going back to your tech stack, you know, you mentioned using Django. We didn't really go, go into maybe some details about the GraphQL setup. Uh, which library do you use for that one? Uh, so we're using Graphene which hooks in very nicely with Django and Django models. Uh, and that's on the back end to sort of help produce the GraphQL API. Uh, and then on the front end, uh, we've been using Relay uh, as sort of our, uh, so we're React uh, on the web and React Native on the, the mobile app. And we've been using Relay as sort of the, the tool chain on the front end to interact with the GraphQL API. Um, it was a choice between Relay and Apollo. Uh, and it's possible that given hindsight uh, and where we've ended up, I might've gone with Apollo. Um, and we may we may end up you know, putting in the work to switch over to Apollo. Uh, we found uh, certain bits and pieces. Relay kind of is very opinionated about the way that your GraphQL API needs to be set up and things like that. Interesting. So I, I haven't used either of those libraries firsthand. Like what type of refactoring job are we looking at here if you were to switch to one? Is that like a, a very, very big undertaking? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I mean, it's, I would like it to, I'd like to think we could kind of do it iteratively. Um, but it's, it's going to take a while to, to pull out Relay and, and drop in Apollo. Uh, it's not quite a one for one match. Um, and again, because of the, the role that it has, uh, and the way that they, they interact with all of the components within your React app, uh, it sort of touches everything. Uh, and so there's going to need to be quite a lot of refactoring to pull one out and push one in. So which is why we're, we're really trying to work out whether or not it's worth it now. I think the answer is probably going to be yes. But uh, assuming that that most of my team listen to this, uh, please don't quote me on it. <laughs> so mentoring, mentioning uh, refactoring here, like what type of code base size are we dealing with? Maybe just on even the back end and the front end. Uh, so our our front end is is just over half a million lines of code. Um, 
I, I think our backend is probably closer to about 300 to 350,000 lines of code. Okay, that and that then, is a lot. Yeah, I mean that's that's in our so we have a mono repo that handles um, our core website and our platform. Uh, we have that that's the lines of code in that repo. Uh, we do have a number of smaller repos for things like data pipelines um, and for all of our infrastructure as a code. Uh, I think we've probably got quite a lot of lines of Terraform as well by now. So yeah, it's it's turning into quite a big code base. Yeah, for sure. And, and that half a million on the front end, is that including node modules or no? No, no, I think it would probably be <laughs> somewhere in the realm of 8 million-ish with node modules. Um, but no, that's that's not including dependencies. That's just all of our code. So I, I guess dependency-wise, I don't know if you're going to know this one off the top of your head, but like how many Python dependencies roughly might you have in like a requirements.txt file or even your package.json for the front end? Uh, so requirements.txt, I'm probably going to give you a much better guess at um than than my package json at the moment because i have been doing much more um back end work than front end but i would say we probably have getting close to 100 uh different requirements um however our, our requirements uh we tend to pin a lot of the dependencies of our dependencies uh just so that we're not surprised um that we know what a pip uh, install is going to do every time uh i think we're probably looking at more like about 40 uh, or 50 odd uh, that we've actually picked out. Right, that's a pretty good testament of, of how powerful Django must be, like the batteries in, included philosophy, right? It's like you have this monstrous application, but really, you know, 40 top level dependencies, not that big, to be honest. Yeah, no, it's it's certainly manageable. You know, you didn't have to pull in the universe. No, we really, we really didn't. We get a lot out of Django. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's very cool to hear. Now, what about database-wise, uh, using Tempest SQL database or something else? Uh, so we, we're on Postgres. Um, I'm a firm believer that you should start with a relational database um, and then use a better tool for the job once you need a better tool for the job. Uh, and so uh, we started with Postgres. Um, we're on AWS, uh, and so we use managed uh, RDS Postgres. Uh, we do have uh, also a Redshift cluster uh, that we use for our data warehousing. Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, I guess queries and things that are much better to a columnar store than a, a row-based storage, um, and so having. Well, hold on, sorry to interrupt, but do you kind of just want to give a, the TLDR on Redshift? Uh, sure. So, uh, Redshift is kind of built for data warehousing. Uh, it's compatible with a slightly older version of Postgres, I think about nine point six, and uh, I guess the the key difference is the underlying uh, architecture, the underlying engine of how they store the data. So, if you if you think about a, a row in a Postgres database, the the first column might take the first eight bytes and the second column might take another eight bytes and the third column might take the, a third eight bytes. So you've got 24 bytes per row um, and then it will store those 24 bytes and then the second row will be next to those on disk. Uh, and then the third row will be next to those on disk. So if you want to pull out uh, the last column for all three of those models, you need to go through 72 bytes on the disk to pull out those particular bytes. Uh, the difference between that and something like Redshift is they store it, I guess, on the disk on a columnar basis. And so all of the values in column one will be stored next to each other, and all of the values in column two will be stored next to each other, and all the values in column three will be stored next to each other. Uh, which means if you're pulling out uh, 
like say for an application level, so the sort of thing that you would do typically in Django, uh, you're going to be working usually one row at a time. You're going to be working on a user or a policy or a vehicle. Uh, once you start getting into like BI and data analytics and data science, you're typically doing very large aggregates over like large, large sets of data where you want to sum everything in the third column and being able to do that without needing to have the, the disk like read ahead every 24 bytes to pull out the bits makes queries that might have taken 40, 50 minutes to run on a Postgres database take 20 seconds on Redshift. Um, so oh, wow. it's, it's, it is, it's still essentially treated like a SQL database, um, but just the underlying engine means that it's much, much more efficient for certain types of data usage. So is it even treated so much as a SQL database that the Django RM just treats it as a Postgres database? Um, so we, we don't connect to it directly via the Django RM. Um, we have our Django ORM right straight into the Postgres database. Uh, and then we use a, a number of tools, uh, so things like Stitch uh, and Fivetran, to connect to the uh, that Postgres database, uh, read the writer head logs, uh, or connect to other instances or other data sources that we want to get, uh, and pull them all into the data warehouse uh, in a raw format. Uh, and then our BI team have a, a data modeling tool called DBT, uh, which they then use to to do the joins and normalize certain models that have been denormalized in the back end and things like that to make for really efficient querying uh, of reports and data analytics. Yeah, that sounds amazing. Once you start dealing with enough data where it makes total sense to you, something like that, like a game changer, right? Like orders of magnitude faster. Yeah, much, much, much faster. Um, you know, we, our financial reconciliation engine has uh, on the order of 50, 40, 50 million rows in it. Uh, and so... And that's the kind of data that you are, you know, you're doing large sums across. You're doing sort of filtering and uh, and then summing months worth of data at a time for finance purposes. And uh, it does it. It's multiple orders of magnitude different for the amount of time it takes to generate the reports we need for finance and things. So maybe rewinding back to some of uh, other components of your tech stack, are you using anything like Redis and Celery or no? Yeah. Uh, so we use we use Redis and Celery. Um, we, what else are we using? Uh, we have started to to move into sort of Kubernetes. Typically, like I said, we're hosted on uh, AWS. Um, and so we, we use quite a lot of AWS managed services. Um, so we're using uh, Lambdas for a number of sort of small jobs. Um, and for some of our data pipelines, we are looking at sort of Kubernetes as we move into sort of deploying much more of a service-based architecture uh, and our workers probably do more work than our app servers. Um, I think in production, we typically have uh, three to five sort of platform app servers up and running uh, at any given time on like a T3 large instance. But our workers, we sometimes scale all the way up to, uh, I think the highest I've seen it was about 24 workers just, just chunking through the queue. A lot of that has to do with how we get data in at peak times. So... Because it's usage-based insurance, we get a lot of data about how when people are driving, uh, and so with uh, you know close to a hundred thousand active users, we can sometimes get quite a lot of shifts in, and all of those shifts need to be processed, and all of those shifts need to be turned into policies and charged, and documents generated, and emails sent, and uh, things checked, and 
all of that is quite a lot of work that happens in the background. So it's not in the sort of standard request response cycle uh, that somebody might look if they were, you know, either interacting with the API or working with the admin. Uh, and so the workers that we have working on those queues probably do, I would say, generally about three to five, four times as much work as anything else does. Oh, wow. Yeah, it seems like you have some interesting constraints too. Like, I'm not really sure how things work behind the scenes yet, but, you know, if you're a driver looking to get insurance for the next couple of hours and they need to opt into accepting a, a transaction from Stripe, right? Like they need to click a link or whatever to get paid or to pay you, that can't really happen like seven hours after their shift, right? Like that needs to happen pretty fast after that, like minutes, maybe like an hour at most or perhaps. So so the way it, the way it typically works is somebody will sign up with us uh, and they'll sign up and then they will deposit some money into their accounts. We'll, we'll say like take a 20 pound initial deposit uh, and then they go to sign up to one of the work providers. Uh, so maybe they sign up with uh, Deliveroo or Uber Eats or Uber and we actually have direct integrations with all of those with those partners so that then you know when when mary goes to start work uh it's not mary who has to tell us that she started work we find out directly from uber that she's picked up a job and as soon as she's picked up that job uh and then finished that job we get a notification of that that trip has happened um and then we process that and work out whether or not mary's you know covered needs to be have a policy created for her generate documents um, and then take however much we need to take out of her her balance that she topped up with at the start right so it's kind of prepaid beforehand yeah yeah it works kind of like a maybe like a prepaid mobile phone or something like that okay so you mentioned uh using aws and maybe some t3 instances here and there is this all self-managed right now like straight up ec2 instances or do you use any of managed uh aws services uh so I would say the majority of our stuff is on uh, EC2 instances. Um, the the Kubernetes work that we've been looking at for deploying uh, service number one uh, is most likely going to go on EKS uh, and using some managed that. We use uh, SQS and SNS as sort of managed queues. And like I said, we use man our managed database. So I, I never want to manage a Postgres instance myself again. Um, and so we use RDS for that. Right. So I think an interesting thing that maybe you can get into would be like, what does it take to go from running one worker backend to running, you know, multiple worker backends, just churning through the queue? You know, you said you get about at peak, maybe 24 of these servers up and running. Like, what do you need to do code wise to set up something like that? So, so the biggest thing is to, to really make sure that all of the tasks that you're putting on the queue are item potent. And, and by that, I mean, sort of, if they get run more than once, it's not going to to matter um, and that allows you to you know have a like let's say you've got a worker and it's picked three or four jobs up off the queue and then the worker dies and those jobs get put back on the queue you don't have to worry whether any of the jobs got halfway through completing or fully completed um, you can just run the job again uh, and so that there requires quite a lot of thinking up front about like how do we make sure that if this job has run, running it again, won't charge that person twice um, or won't send that person two emails or two text messages. Um, and, and a lot of that just has to, to do with making sure that you are you know, tracking things by the right IDs, know, knowing that if you've sent a text message 
for you don't just have an, a job that says like send a text message you have a job that says send a test me- text message for this unsent notification and then the work to send that notification and mark it as sent uh, all happens in you know one transaction so either it all fails together or it all succeeds together uh, which means if another job comes along and says I need to send a text message for this particular notification it can bail out right at the start because it sees that it's already been sent likewise you can you can do like if you've got jobs that are possible to acknowledge that they've happened uh, afterwards so if they are an asynchronous job um, and you can get a notification that something has been received um, then you can mark that job as complete in a way that you could run the job as many times as you wanted um, and it wouldn't try and do its work more than once right so it sounds like maybe the takeaway there is just having a maybe like a status column on some table and marking that as complete or whatever and just making sure to look that up instead of just always running it yeah yeah it's um one of the so one of the mistakes we made very early on uh, and then thankfully fixed very early on um was uh this idea of of making sure that all of our jobs were unimportant uh, because we got bit uh we got bit by uh, having a whole bunch of jobs uh, that didn't complete, uh, but then also didn't get retried um, because they just errored. Uh, and then we had no way of, of retrying them because we didn't know which ones had completed and which ones hadn't. And we knew that if we just retried everything, we would double charge people or we would send people multiple emails. Uh, and so, you know, that took days worth of unpicking stuff to work out and troll through logs and find out what needed to be redone and what didn't. And at that point, we put the effort into to make sure that we never had to do that again. Right. Well, that sounds like the typical workflow, right? It's like get totally destroyed by something, figure it out, and make sure it never happens again. Like you're always learning from mistakes. Like that happens to me all the time. Yeah, exactly. So how does this work then when it comes to something like pushing a new version of your application? Like those workers probably need to be, you know, updated for the new code. Do you do some type of like rolling restart in all of those like manually or how does that work? Uh, so our deployment process is is fairly uh, automated. Um, and so we use AWS code deploy, um, which takes you know instances down in, in pairs out of a load balancer or out of the, the queue and updates them and then puts them back in. Um, and so at no time do we have sort of nothing in the queue uh, or nothing in that that load balancer group and you know what that means is that we're able to do zero downtime deploys um the only the only real gotcha typically is when you're trying to drop a column uh and this becomes very i guess django specific they the way django builds its queries from the orm uh, is that it won't it won't do a select star from whatever table it will select all of the individual attributes of that model. Um, and so if you have dropped a column by running the, the Django migrations, but the Django code still knows about an attribute on a model, then it's going to try and query that column in the table despite it not being there. Um, so it's a fairly easy workaround. You just have to drop the attribute from the model in one deployment, and then in a second deployment, actually drop the column. Um, but it can it can bite you if you're you haven't experienced it before or it gets missed in code review um, at which point the time between when the migrations are run uh, which is typically before uh, any of the code on any of the machines is deployed and that they're put back into the load balancer 
anything that tries to access that model is going to fail. Right. Yeah, I don't think that's even too Django specific. Like, of course, it is for Django as well. But yeah, this happens with a lot of ORMs. Like, that is a you know, just generally speaking, right? Database migrations at scale when you have two versions of an app running is like one of the trickiest problems to solve in a, in a nice way. Yeah, um, and and I mean, it is. It tends to be one of those things. It's like if if a couple of if a minute's worth of downtime matters, um, then that's typically a really nice problem to have uh, because it means there's enough people trying to use you in that minute uh, that are going to care that it's that it's down. But it is. It's one of those things that. You do have to take into consideration, um, and and again, probably points towards as we were talking earlier, um, having a much wider separation of concerns by giving each service its own dedicated database. Right. Yeah, that would make a, a very nice difference there if you just need to pull out one little service instead of taking down the whole thing. Yeah. Now, going back to your infrastructure, you mentioned that you're using Terraform. Do you know maybe know like off the top of your head, like how many resources do you manage with Terraform? Because I know AWS, there's like you know, almost as many services on that platform as there are modules available on NPM. Uh, I don't know if this off my head. Um, I can I can probably find out for you. Um, I might I might slack someone and see if they can get back to us by the end of the interview and let you know. Okay, it's okay though. But I mean, generally, it's like your Terraform setup is just managing as much as you can from the AWS platform. Uh, so yeah, I mean, we literally manage everything on our AWS platform in Terraform. Are you the guy in charge of that or someone else? No, no. I now have a team in charge of that uh, who are much better at Terraform than I am. I go, I go in occasionally. I know how to do it. Uh, and I will go in occasionally and update some roles if I need to and, and things like that. But uh, typically, we've got uh, a couple of very, very good DevOps engineers uh, sitting on a team um, discussing and working out how to do all that. But we have now got a uh, essentially a, 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 to a point where all of our infrastructure uh, is managed in Terraform. Yeah, that's great to hear. And also your infrastructure team must love you, right? Like, you know just enough to be dangerous to take down the whole production system. <laughs> uh, I do as well. And especially because I, I have all the rights to do it um, because I because I handle all of the billing and, uh, and things like that. Uh, I probably have uh, enough rights to be much, much more dangerous than I... I but no, it's I, I trust them to do most of it. So I do just pop my head in every now and then. And like we have a we have a pretty decent again, one of the advantages of having it in Terraform uh, is that it's all in code. So nothing gets like no infrastructure can be changed without somebody raising a pull request. And no pull request can be merged to master without it being approved by somebody else. Um, and it's that merge to master that tricks off the the CI to actually make the change in production. So it's it would be very difficult for me to make a particularly dangerous change without hopefully somebody catching it. Right, yeah, unless you just decide to make the PR with no approvals. Uh, a, a drunken rage at 2 a.m. <laughs> drunken, drunken rage. Yeah, GitHub does does give you this little, like, you abuse your uh, administrator privileges to merge this PR, uh, which, which I do sometimes have to stop myself from doing. Yeah, but you bring up some good points, though, about just you know, the trust that you have in your other developers to make sure, you know, protecting everything for the greater good from everyone. Uh, how do you have things set up in that regard? Is there like a minimum number of, of approvals? Do you have like really, really rigorous linters in place? Like, how's that all going? Uh, so a combination of both. We've got a, a, a pretty decent test, seat, uh, test suite um, that is run on every single pull request. Um, we have uh, a number of, of checks, not just in the, the unit tests that are run, 
but also do things like uh, check that you're not, you know, adding a, a migration that's going to fail um, and uh, checking that you haven't forgotten to add any missing migrations for your code or anything like that. Um, they check uh, to make sure we haven't accidentally committed any secrets um, and they'll stop you from, from raising requests if you do that. Uh, we were sitting at the moment on one, um, one, at least one other developer has to approve it. That is working for us. Um, again, like we're a team of uh, 35-ish, uh, I think, engineers. Um, and so still relatively small. Uh, we're able to have enough trust in, in each other at that point to say if there's one person uh, who typically has used that part of the code base before that approves something, um, then it will get through. So at this point, can any developer then just push to production once it gets through the workflow? Uh, yes. Right. So like they'll commit some code, push it up to GitHub, CI will kick in, it'll eventually get merged to master, and then does it go straight into production or is there some like manual review on like a QA server somewhere? So we, we have a number of different environments. Um, we have our QA environments are probably the the first place code will go after a developer's machine. Uh, and these are short-lived environments. Uh, they get spun up specifically for that particular pull request um, if it needs to have some QA done on it. And uh, they get killed overnight, uh, so they're not sort of long-lived. Um, these aren't usually connected to any external systems. Um, and so you know, they're not connected to staging Stripe or any of the other finance providers. You can't send emails from them and things like that. Um, if you want to test any of those sort of more integrated services, you deploy your code to the staging environment. And that staging environment is sort of a bit more long-lived. Um, we are moving from, uh, I guess, a Git flow type of deployment, um, where in order to get your code in production, you actually deploy your feature branch to production. Um, and then once it's out, you merge it into master, um, which has been very, very nice up until now. Uh, it means rolling back is very easy. You just deploy master back to production. But it started to cause, with the size of the team and the amount of deployments we're doing a day, which is sometimes getting up to sort of 15, 20, uh, it's causing quite long deploy queues. Uh, and so we needed to either implement some sort of, of train uh, so that we could bundle up different deployments um, but it looks like we'll be possibly moving to much more of a, like a master-based deployment. Uh, and so that developer, whoever they are, will raise a pull request. Uh, it will get automatically spun up into a QA environment for any sort of QA. It will go through code review. It will pass all the unit tests. Uh, and then they will merge that branch into master. Uh, and we use a, a, a squash and merge um, so that every commit in master is one particular feature. Um, and then that will trigger CI to push that out into production. Yeah, that sounds like a, a very cool setup. I really love the idea, and unless I misunderstood this, for every PR that comes in, like you just, I guess you generate some sort of like random subdomain, and that's a clickable URL that someone can check out the site from? Yeah, yeah it, um, it, it's based on the branch name. Uh, and so if you have a, a branch name, uh, you will get a... Uh, a URL that goes to a, an instance uh, that has the full stack up and running on that machine. Yeah, very cool. Yeah, it's like a whole next level of CI, right? It's like instead of just making sure a test pass, there's actually a way for you to check it out like live in a browser. Yep. So do you do any other forms of maybe just 
safer deployment strategies like feature flags, like maybe deploying with the feature off, but then like change some configuration, things like that? Uh, so we, we try a lot, like we don't have a, a formal um, sort of uh, either launch darkly or, or split or a framework like that in place. Um, but I guess part of the the sprint type agile work we do, we try and get our code into production as early as possible. Uh, and so rather than, uh, you know, launching one 1500 line pull request, um, you will try and get individual bits of that code that can go into production um, and either be used or just at least there in the code base after being code viewed um, up and running. And often that there will be behind a manual flag. Uh, and so that might be, uh, you know, we we have environment variables in our settings to be able to say, you know, this is the URL for a third party integration. Uh, and if that URL is not set, then we will just ignore that integration, uh, which then becomes very easy to essentially get all of your code out into production and just wait to set that particular SQL or that particular environment variable before the code starts getting run. Right. So the code is kind of deployed, but dead and then activated later in a separate commit, maybe. Yeah, either a separate commit or even just a, a change to a parameter store. Uh, so all of our secrets management uses uh, AWS parameter store. Uh, and so you can run your changes in that uh, and then restart an instance and it will pick up the new parameters. Uh, is that like a something you change at the Terraform level or no, when it comes to changing one of those parameters? Or do you have that baked into your admin UI somewhere? No, so those those parameters, we, we log into the AWS console to change. Um, Typically, they they contain things like uh, database passwords and API keys and secret keys and things like that. Um, and so we want to keep them out of code as much as possible. Um, and the AWS, uh, I guess, console interface allows you to do quite a lot of good permissioning based on them uh, and gives you all of the audit trails in uh, CloudTrail and things like that. So when it comes to the instances themselves, do you set them up using some type of configuration management tool like Ansible or something else? Um, no. So we were we were considering doing a bunch of that, but instead we just created some some AMIs um, that we needed to essentially define what either a platform service or a, a worker service would look like, um, and then those AMIs are, are baked into AWS, and then we just spin it up. Terraform. Right. Okay. So for listeners out there, I guess like your strategy is like a, like a golden image hybrid, like you're pre-baking the AMI, which is, you know, basically the operating system, all the libraries you want, all the system configuration. And then you just leverage AWS to do code deploys based on after CI is finished. Yeah. So the only thing that changes on that AMI is the code for each deploy. Yes. Yeah, that's right. So, so the code comes down and, and, uh, occasionally you know, if we need to, if we need to do a fresh pip install or something like that, uh, if we've added a new module, then that will get run as well. Um, but the initial creation of the virtual environment uh, that all of those modules get installed into uh, is part of the AMI. Right. So when it comes to the AMI, uh, are you using Amazon's based operating system, or did you pick something else? Uh, we're using Amazon's uh, version of whatever Linux it is. Right, CentOS or Red Hat, something like that. So this might be prying in too deep with details, but I mean, do you have like an estimate of what you guys pay on AWS to host all of this? Uh, last time I checked, we were greater than 10,000, less than 50,000 uh, per month. I, I really much appreciate that. Like that, that's a very you know honest and, and useful range. Uh, yeah, we, we try and 
and like we're we're a startup, everyone is is cash strapped. So we try and keep track of what we're spending, and if we think that something is going a little bit haywire, uh, there is definitely traps you can fall into. We we recently saved uh, a whole heap of of money per month just by moving all of our database backups uh, off of RDS snapshots uh, and storing them as SQL dumps. Um, and so, you know, we were we were storing not only you know just in time backups for the last seven days uh, or point in time, sorry, backups for the last seven days, but then uh, we were storing weekly and monthly backups uh, since the beginning of time. Um, and you know, when you start, those the the volume of those snapshots is relatively low, and you don't realize how much it's costing you. Uh, and then after a while you look at the bill and you're like, why is RDS costing us so much money these days? And you realize most of it is just in the snapshots. Uh, and you can solve that by, you know, offloading those snapshots um, via Lambda Jobs and CI into a, a backups S3 account uh, that is encrypted and locked down. And, you know, we went from spending about three grand a month on database snapshots to about three pounds a month on database snapshots. Wow. Yeah, your billing team must have enjoyed that, or anyone who has any stake in the company. <laughs> that's a that's a big improvement. Yeah, yeah, no, I think I think I think, and it, and again, it was one of those ones. It's like you feel a bit silly when you realize that you can do it, and then you feel really good for actually doing it. Um, but you know, like anything, when you start when you start quite small, uh, you don't realize what's going to scale and how things are going to scale. So you know, it sounds like you're exploring all sorts of different services on AWS, right? Uh, Lambda, S3, and RDS, and all these other ones. Uh, I, I guess are you also using their CDN then to serve all of your static files? Uh, so we we sit behind Cloudflare, um, and Cloudflare handles quite a lot of our uh, caching right on the edge. They Cloudflare also manages all of our DNS um, and our SSL and things like that. Uh, so we offload quite a lot of that to there. Um, so we don't have uh, a great deal in CloudFront. Uh, we do use a number of services for uh, some of our static file uh, hosting and things like that. So um, we, uh, going back to some of the, the SaaS tools and stuff we use, we have a, a service called Imagix, and it allows us to do sort of on-demand resizing and uh, optimization of images. Um, and so that they will read from an S3 bucket uh, and then run through Imagix service and then get cached by Cloudflare so that, you know, repeater requests don't don't go back to Imagix. And that all works really, really well. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really cool setup. And I know Cloudflare, I mean, they have various different plans, but if you're on the free plan, it's a lot cheaper than uh, Amazon CDN or other CDNs out there. Yeah, I mean, even their paid plans end up being much cheaper than a lot of the other CDNs out there. Yeah, for sure. And with half a million lines of JavaScript, uh, you have a decent amount of static files. Yes. Yeah, we do. Do you happen to know like offhand, maybe like what is the size of that payload? If someone were to just go to your site for the first time, like what type of uh, JavaScript download is that? Um, last I checked, it it came through, I mean, still at, like in, for initial payload, uh, less than a megabyte. Uh, so we do a lot of server-side rendering. And so we only sort of render when you get to the first page what you need to to actually be able to to load that page, and so last I checked, we were we were under a megabyte. Um, I think now it, it might have crept up to just over a megabyte, 
but again, the team that are responsible for that uh, are like really, really on it when it comes to optimizing this stuff. Um, you know, as far as we're concerned, you know, building a website in these day and age, you can't, you can't be, uh, I guess, blase uh, about this. And we know that a lot of people visit our site on mobile devices. And if you're on a mobile device and you're on 3G, you don't have the same sort of network bandwidth um, or computation power. Uh, and so I guess part of accessibility is making sure that you care about, you know, your initial payload and you care about how much work you're asking the client to do. Right. Is that one meg, is that after GZIP or before? Uh, before GZIP, I believe. Okay. So it could be actually uh, quite a bit smaller than that, right? Sorry, after GZIP. Oh, okay. Yeah, so, so zipped up. It's, I mean, it's big, but it's, um, there's quite a lot in it. Right. At least also, I mean, to save some grace here, you, you are doing some type of server rendered uh, templating there, right? Like, what was that one library you said, Next.js or something? Yeah, we have we have Next.js um, as our, I guess, the, the server-side version of our front-end application, our front-end website. Um, and that handles all of the initial server-side rendering and handles a, a bunch of the routing and things like that. So I guess maybe uh, switching gears a little bit back to other maybe SaaS tools that you use, I would imagine you know, you're sending out a lot of emails and text messages. Do you have a specific service in mind for that or do you just use what comes included with AWS? Uh, no, so for emails, uh, we're using Mailgun um, and SMS is all via Twilio. We, you know, we, we, you can use some of the built-in Amazon stuff. Um, we tried Amazon um, for like the SES for their short email service and the deliverability rates weren't great. Uh, and a lot of the times when we want to send these kind of transactional emails, uh, it's very important that they get through. Uh, and so we found uh, MailGun to be pretty good with deliverability. So what about other uh, potential things too, like error reporting, logging metrics? What do you use for those services? So all of our errors get captured into Sentry. Um, uh, we use the a hosted version of Sentry rather than self-hosting. And uh, we've got loads of integrations from Sentry um, all the way through into our CI uh, so that we're pushing releases to Sentry so you can see which release triggered a particular error. Uh, it also integrates very well with all of our communication tools like Slack and things like that. Um, and for a lot of alerting and logging, we're using Datadog. Uh, and so Datadog handles all of our uh, APM metrics uh, as well as our logging. Okay. So is the Django support for that good? Like you can get all sorts of great details about query performance and API responses and all that stuff? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, it it has a whole bunch of built-in modules uh, and allows you to set your own uh, traces and you can set tags and build automatic dashboards off it. We've been talking with the guys from Datalog quite a lot recently uh, and getting more and more into it uh, to start to really run uh, a bunch of experiments. Um, so there's a, a library in Ruby uh, called Science, I think, and there's a, a Python version called Laboratory uh, that allows you to essentially run two code paths uh, and compare the output. So it means you can refactor large parts of your code base where you might not be 100% confident that the entire refactor is covered by unit tests, um, but you can set up these experiments uh, and then laboratory will run them and you can get all of the metrics from that output directly to a Datadog dashboard, uh, which means you can see we ran both code paths 
500 times and they both had the exact same output. Uh, so now you can be fairly confident that your refactor is uh, working correctly and you can get rid of the old original code and just use the new code. Oh, wow. uh, and it's really revolutionized sort of like the way we go about refactoring large parts of our code base. Yeah, that sounds like a, a really cool thing. I haven't heard about that yet. But I, I do really like the idea of just having metrics and logging by the same provider because being able to match those up is like uh, very good for trying to debug problems. Yeah, that's why I really like Datadog. Um, yeah, it's I, I like to think sort of metrics are the the thing that it lets you know that something has gone wrong uh, and the logging is what you really need to work out why it's gone wrong. Um, and so being able to link directly between those two is, is amazing. So what about maybe some other type of uh, unexpected events? Like, do you get alarms if things go wrong? Like the website isn't responding like the health check or CPU is too high on the server? Uh, yeah, so a lot of those um, metrics get, get pumped into data. So, so things like CPU alerts, um, and that's all connected via Slack. We have health checks. Um, so we actually use a, a library called, uh, I think it's just called Django Health Check, which is a, a package that uh, not just checks that the server will respond uh, with a 200, but you can also check that, you know, your it can connect to the database correctly or it can connect to your queues correctly and things like that. So it kind of checks that more of your stack is up because um, after a while it becomes very easy for the website to appear to be up, but nothing can connect to the database. Um, and so Django Health Check will kind of let you go and dig a little bit deeper down. Um, and then that's that's all connected via, it was Pingdom, it might be PagerDuty now, uh, to wake people up in the middle of the night uh, if that goes down. We don't we don't tend to have, like, I'm gonna touch as much wood as I can find at the moment, we don't tend to have too much uh, in the way of downtime. Uh, and so most of the time it's actually, you know, an alert that the queue size is getting a little bit too high and just letting us know that it's going to spin up another couple of workers. Um, or that there might be some unusual amount of, of requests come through onto the website. Um, and we'll typically go in and try and find out, you know, what it is that's caused those alerts. Um, and we find Slack is actually the best place for that. Right. Yeah, I like that approach, right, of kind of being proactive about it. It's like you get warned before it's a problem, so you don't need to react to downtime. Yeah. In most cases, hopefully, knock on wood. <laughs> uh, I'm pretty sure so far every month this year uh, we've hit four nines in terms of uptime. Wow, that's that's amazing, given how popular the, the service is. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I don't think our, our DevOps team will be happy until we're at five nines, um, but uh, I think it's a, a really good achievement. Right. Well, look at something like Amazon's S3. I mean, I forget, like, how many nines do they have? But that's, like, one of the most reliable services out there. Like, four nines is still super impressive. Yes. Yeah, no, I, I am. I'm, I'm really happy with our, our performance. Yep. So we're getting near the end of the call here. I mean, we've gone over all sorts of good stuff about disaster recovery. And I, I really do like that idea too of, you know, I used to go with health checks, you know, uh, sending like the most minimal response possible, like an empty body, like head request looking for a 200, but super important to do that database check, even if it's something as simple as just doing like a select one, you know, just make sure you can connect, like super valuable. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you, you run the risk of uh, possibly worse, which is thinking everything's working when it's not. Um, and I like to say, like, we should be the first people to know when something's wrong. If it's, you know, our customer support team telling us something's wrong because they've discovered uh, before we have, uh, then that's already pretty bad. 
if it's a customer calling out customer support team to tell them that something's wrong, uh, then we're into the really bad territory. Uh, and so, you know, we need to know that things are wrong before anybody else does. Yeah. So I guess on that related note, do you do any type of like live testing in production, like automated tests that really run and test real things to make sure it's still running? Uh, we, we have a little bit. Um, and some of those we'll go through and just sort of test that stuff is up and running. Part of the the downside to running those kind of live tests to get all the way through the system and like purchase a policy um, is that that's actually purchasing a policy and we will need to pay a bunch of that to our underwriter and we will need to pay IPT on it um, regardless of whether we try and cancel it and things. So it, it allows us to get certainly a, a long way through it. Um, but we, we do rely quite a lot on sort of the QA and staging environments to make sure that uh, sort of end-to-end -end it's working. Right. Uh, and so the only thing we really run on production is sort of the smoke tests. Um, is everything still up and running? Can I connect to the database? Uh, can I put a job onto the queue? Okay, it's probably going to work. Right, yeah. At some point, you just have to trust your code coverage and QA process and, you know, once in a while, hopefully not too often, you know, an end user writing in some support email. So what would you say are some of your best tips and lessons learned from building this project? I would I would say probably like release as often as you possibly can. Um, I know that uh, it's probably quite often said these days. Um, you know, we, we got something into production in eight weeks um, and it was relatively complex um, and it wasn't anywhere near correct. Uh, you know, we had to make so many changes and so many fixes, um, but we wouldn't have had the opportunity to make those changes and make those fixes if it wasn't there. And if you're going to do that, if you're going to be in a world where you can release as often as possible, you need to put the time into like investing in that release process. Uh, like I said, we can we are currently doing 15 to 20 deployments a day. Uh, we very early on made all of those deployments um, as automated as possible. Uh, they were triggered via a Slack command onto a a bot that would trigger a CI pipeline and make it so that from a developer point of view, getting those releases out, getting your code into production was as easy as possible. And that's also been the biggest pain point as we've scaled um, because it's it's fun to work on new features. It's fun to, to build on the platform and the having to wait for like one person's deployment to finish before you can start yours doesn't sound too bad, but then without realizing it, you get to the point where, you know, you're waiting for three or four people in the queue ahead of you to finish theirs so that you can finish yours. And it just gets frustrating. Um, and it's frustrating for every single developer who's trying to get their code into production. Uh, and nobody wants to be frustrated. People just, people want to just write, write great code and do interesting things. Uh, and so really investing in, you know, making sure that getting code into production is as easy as possible and can be done as confidently as possible. Because if if you don't have confidence in your test suite, if you don't have confidence in the deployment process, then people won't be not putting their code into production because it takes too long. People will be not putting their code into production because they're scared that it's not going to work. And I think is easing as much of that as possible and really investing into those tools and into those processes uh, is just going to make life so much easier as you scale. Yeah. That's very good advice. And by the way, one last topic about maybe deployments and database migrations. Do you actually run like Django's, uh, like I guess, like a db migrate command on every single deploy, whether or not you have migration files? 
yeah so so part of part of the deployment script is just to to like the first box that gets deployed we run manage by migrate on it and then uh, that there forces like any you know additional columns to be made or alt or changes to columns uh, and then the code gets pushed to the rest of the boxes okay cool yeah I only brought that up because I think that's a an interesting detail because you know, as you spoke about in your lessons learned, right, easing the deployment process, it gets very complicated if you have to hit like different buttons in your CI based on like deploy with a database migration, deploy with no database migration, deploy with an environment variable update and no database migration, or deploy but run the database migration but put the site into maintenance mode. Like there's like 17,000 different variables. Yeah, make it easier than that. Yeah, for sure. So on that note, Stuart, thanks a lot for coming on the Running in Production podcast. It was really great having you on. Thanks. Thanks. It was really it was really good being here. I had a really nice chat. Yeah. So before we wrap this up, do you want to share any links to your site, Twitter, GitHub profile, things like that? www.zigo.com. Um, I paid enough for the domain. I should share it as much as I can. <laughs> um, go check us out. I mean, we, we have a GitHub. Uh, I think it's Zigo Cover because um, somebody, somebody else told their Zigo. Uh, on GitHub, we have open sourced uh, a number of, of projects. Um, we would like to open source more and contribute more. But yeah, if you're interested in learning more, go check out our website uh, or send me an email. It's just stu at zigo.com. Cool. I'll make sure to drop that in the show notes. And to everyone listening, thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you in the next one. You've been listening to the Running in Production podcast. You can find a full archive of the show at runninginproduction.com. Also, don't forget to subscribe using your favorite podcast player or leave a review if you like the show.